Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Ovarian cancer occurs when abnormal cells in a woman's ovaries or fallopian tubes grow and multiply out of control. Ovarian cancer ranks fifth in cancer deaths among women accounting for more deaths than any other cancer of the female productive, reproductive system. My guest today is Nancy Long, nurse practitioner and Annapolis Volunteer Market Coordinator with the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. She will talk about types and stages of ovarian cancer in addition to risk factors, common symptoms, screening tests, treatment options, and prognosis. She'll also talk about the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition and programs and services the organization offers. So welcome, Nancy, and thank you for joining me today. Cheryl, thank you so much for having me. I am uh, always so happy to promote awareness of ovarian cancer. I'm, I'm glad we're getting more press these days. Well, and that's exactly what we're going to do throughout this program. So let's start by having you give us a bit of an anatomy and physiology lesson. Talk to us about where the ovaries are in women and, again, the the reproductive system. Sure. And if I might, just before we we get into the meat of this, um, I'd just like to tell your audience that I am an old nurse and I worked in GYN for my entire career. Um, I, in 2004, I missed all the signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer. I was having, um, we'll talk about what are the most common signs and symptoms. I was having all of them, but they can also be the normal part of our lives. So um, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2004 at a late stage, which most of us are. And I, um, I vowed that if I lived, I would help promote awareness of this silent disease. And so I um, came across the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. It's a fabulous organization, and I've been volunteering with them since 2009. And it's brought a lot of joy to my life. I've met so many wonderful women with ovarian cancer, and um, it. I'm very honored to be in this position. So back to the ovaries. Um, Ovaries are two small organs on either side of the uterus. They're attached by little ligaments, and they have a a great deal of function in our lives. Um, They store and produce all of the eggs that are made, um, and they also provide hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. Uh, during an individual's life. Um, So they, it it always amazes me when everything goes right with the menstrual cycle. When somebody says, oh, well, my menstrual cycle was irregular this month. um, I always say, well, it amazes me how it can be so regular all the time. So the ovaries are very important organs. So given what you just described, then explain what happens when a woman does have ovarian cancer. And as you're talking about that, uh, help us understand a little bit more about how common it it is amongst older women. Yeah. So, you know, normal cells, they do their job and then they die off. Cancer cells keep multiplying and they, cancer cells are unique in that they can invade other organs. Um, So, when a woman, when an individual has ovarian cancer, these cells continue to multiply and they were not exactly sure where they may start, either in the fallopian tube, in the ovary, in the peritoneum, the area that houses the bowel and the liver, um, but they keep growing and that becomes a problem. And um, one in 78 women will be diagnosed with ovarian cancer, but half of those will be 63 years of age and older. So it's not 
it's not terribly uncommon in the younger woman, but it is more common in the older population. And to that point, Nancy, then, are there common risk factors uh, that uh, more women might have, or are there just a few? Yeah, there are definitely risk factors. Anyone with a family history of either ovarian, certainly, breast cancer or colorectal cancer um, has a higher risk. Um, Any personal history of breast cancer, uh, if you have a personal history, then you're at a much higher risk for ovarian cancer. Anyone that has an inherited gene mutation has a higher risk. Some of the more common gene mutations that you might have heard of are the BRCA1 and 2 gene mutations, but there are others. Um, I was found to have a mutation called RAD51D. Um, RAD51D is a gene, and uh, those genes, when they, when they have a, a germline or, a, or an inherited mutation, don't function properly. Um, and so that is big. If you have a, um, a strong fam- family history of cancer, you might think about going for genetic testing. Uh, people that have any fertility treatments, if their ovaries are not working properly and they don't ovulate proper- properly, um, fertility treatments can put them at a higher risk for ovarian cancer. Childbirth later on in life or if someone has never had a full-term pregnancy, increases your risk of ovarian cancer. Um, And of course, the normal things that we talk about with any cancer, smoking, uh, obesity, um, a sedentary lifestyle, they are all risk factors. We should all strive to um, encourage healthy living in in our older population especially. And I'm hearing you talk about the the role of genetics and uh, the fact of of getting genetic counseling. I think nowadays people are hearing a lot about genetic counseling and not necessarily knowing, well, do you get that from your primary care physician? Is there a special place that you go? Can you give us a little bit more information about genetic counseling? You mentioned already that it could be helpful, but how, if a woman had understood that there was perhaps a history of ovarian cancer in her family, uh, that she would look for genetic counseling. Tell us how she could do that. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think genetic counseling is going to be so, well, it is now, but it's so important in, in the future in prevention or reducing our risk of all types of cancer. If someone has um, a a first-degree relative or any relative, really, with ovarian cancer or breast cancer, especially if breast cancer is diagnosed at an early age, it would be great for them to investigate genetic counseling. So it's really important for the person that has the cancer to get the counseling first, Um, because if they are negative for any genetic mutations, then their family would, well, on that side of the family, you know, a, a mother can um, can pass on her genetic material to her offspring as well as the father. So even in the father's family, if the father's mother had ovarian cancer, it's just as important um, to learn about your genetic history from your father as well as your mother. So if you have a strong family history of ovarian or breast cancer or colorectal cancer, um, it would be good to first talk to your GYN and um, or your primary care um, may be a good resource as well. But at most hospitals, and now I say that because we live on the East Coast and we've got so many wonderful facilities here, but most hospitals will have access to a genetic counselor. And you can be referred to one either by your primary care or your GYN. And to just go and talk about your family history, it's really important to know what age your parent or your cousin or your maternal aunt, paternal aunt, when they got their cancer diagnosis, because age really matters. 
Um, so if you would talk to the genetic counselor, she would do a whole family medical cancer tree and come to the conclusion, well, yes, you should be tested. Or if your mother had ovarian cancer and she was tested and she was negative, that's not always means you're negative because let me just tell you a little bit about my story. I was diagnosed in 2004. I had genetic testing. I was negative. Um, and then over the years, about four or five years later, I was tested again, still negative for what the mutations they knew of at the time. So then about uh, 10 years after my diagnosis, I was tested again, and I was found to have a mutation in the RAD51 gene. Um, and then it's important, there's, it's so important to talk to your family about that as well. It's very difficult when you know that you might pass down a gene that causes cancer to your family. Um, in my family, my daughter, um, whom I was telling you about a little earlier, uh, she also acquired the gene from me. My daughter was in medical school when I was diagnosed. I always like to tell this story. Um, she was in her uh, GYN oncology rotation. Imagine that. She really helped me through my cancer. And when she graduated from medical school, she went on to do her residency and fellowship in GYN oncology. So she is a surgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital, which um, I just think has uh, been a blessing uh, for many. So I'm very proud of her. Um, my one son is negative, and then my other son uh, has not been tested yet. So that's a there on on our website on the NOCC website. There is um, tips for talking to your family about inherited genes. So that's a good resource. So what I'm hearing you say is that there are actually ovarian cancer risk assessment and prevention programs that may go even beyond just genetic uh, possibilities. Talk a little bit more about what those programs are like. And again, would that be something that the GYN or the uh, primary care provider would provide for a woman or somebody, a woman who might be concerned about the fact that she's at risk of ovarian cancer? Cheryl, I know there are a lot of breast prevention programs. I am not aware in our area of GYN cancer prevention programs, but certainly if someone has a relative uh, with ovarian cancer or if you are found to have the genetic mutation, um, to seek counsel with a GYN oncologist and to just have them surveil you and give you suggestions of how to proceed, I think is wonderful. And and then uh, we will talk about some risk uh, reduction as well. Okay. And so to that point, are there, I mean, you've talked already a, a lot about different possible risk factors. Are there any options that would help a woman reduce her risk of ovarian cancer that she could do? Yes, uh, there are. And of course, all the options are very individualized. So it's so important to talk to your GYN about this. But um, we know that taking birth control pills, if you take birth control pills for five years, you can reduce your risk of ovarian cancer by 30 to 50 percent. Um, childbirth and breastfeeding are good ways to reduce your risk, although that is a very personal option. Um, living a healthy lifestyle, as we talked. Then you can have uh, surgical removal. In recent years, we have learned or we think that ovarian cancer may start in the fallopian tubes. So if you are um, not prepared to have ovaries removed for risk reducing, um, you may just have your fallopian tubes removed. Um, we feel that that is a risk reducing uh, air prevention. Um, if you are postmenopausal, you may have your ovaries removed. Um, so they are options that you can talk about with your doctor. There is um, evidence that maybe um, now if if someone has their tubes removed, they have to know if they still would like to have children that that 
can inhibit that naturally. They can have children via uh, IVF, but they can, if they remove their tubes, they are not able to conceive naturally. Um, but that's why these are such important questions to talk with your healthcare provider about. Well, and especially since we're assuming that, uh, not assuming, but what you had said earlier about the fact that ovarian cancer does occur in older adults or older women, I should say. And so they have different options than perhaps a, a younger women who might be diagnosed with, uh, with ovarian cancer. So help us now understand what the common symptoms of ovarian cancer are. And based on what you told us earlier about the fact that you didn't know that you had ovarian cancer, it sounds like the silent disease is a, uh, an appropriate label for this particular cancer. So what should women be looking for to make sure that this isn't a silent disease? What do they need to know? So I want your women listening to know that we all have these symptoms at different points in our lives. And most of the time, it is not ovarian cancer. But if these symptoms persist for longer than two weeks, then they need to be brought to the attention of their healthcare provider. And they are indigestion, not being able to eat a meal. If you've always enjoyed a meal and all of a sudden you can only take a few bites and then you feel full, that's a warning sign. Feeling bloated, any pelvic or abdominal pain, feeling urinary urgency or frequency when you don't have a urinary tract infection, these can all be signs of ovarian cancer. And it is thought that sometimes ovarian cancer can't be found in early stages. Um, by the time you do have symptoms, it may be in the later stages. Again, um, women have these symptoms throughout their lives. Um, but if they persist, remember that if they persist, seek uh, counsel from your healthcare provider. I'm intrigued also by the fact that you talked about indigestion. And oftentimes, I just did a program a couple of weeks ago about heart disease and the possible symptoms for women. And I shared uh, a comment that I, a cardiologist made to me about the worst case of indigestion you ever had uh, is might be a symptom of having a heart attack. So it's very interesting that sometimes these symptoms can be very vague and you don't know, well, it'll pass or, gee, I need to go and see my gynecologist or my uh, primary care physician. Is, is that true, Nancy? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of us popping Tums or Beano, um, if you're doing that too often, see the underlying reason. And sometimes we're, we are diagnosed with other things before ovarian cancer, such as irritable bowel syndrome or GERD. Um, these are common things that we have. But if they don't go away with treatment, then when you see your healthcare provider, a question might be, I'm concerned about ovarian cancer. Could these symptoms be ovarian cancer? Also, it sounds like it would be a good idea maybe to keep track of how often these symptoms are occurring. And so when you do see your gynecologist or your primary care physician, you can give her or him an account of what you've been experiencing. And, and I wanted to get some verification from you on that, as well as what I thought I heard you say was that two weeks is probably a good time frame in which to say, Oh, I think it's probably time that I talk with someone. You're absolutely right. And on the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition's webpage, there is a, a, a signs and symptoms page where they give you a two-week um, symptom diary that you can fill out. And it's good, too, because we forget sometimes, oh, did I have that? How many times did I have that last month? I don't remember. So, yes, that's a great point. And, um, and two weeks, sometimes these symptoms go away and then they return. So two weeks isn't written in stone, but um, if they persist or keep returning, then seek health care professional advice. And so when a woman would go to see her physician, 
then are there certain types of screening tests that are available to diagnose ovarian cancer? Tell us about those and and are they reliable? So unfortunately, Cheryl, there are no screening tests for ovarian cancer, which is shocking, right? A pap smear determines cervical cancer. It does not do anything for ovarian cancer. So that's why it's so important for us to know our bodies and go in if we have symptoms to go in to be tested. Now, so there's no screening test that that a GYN will do routinely. But if someone is having symptoms, they can have a blood test, which is called a CA-125. Unfortunately, that blood test can be positive when you don't have ovarian cancer, and it can be negative when you do. So, But it is a test that we use if someone's having symptoms. They also can do a pelvic transvaginal sonogram um, to see if there are any masses present. Um, and of course, the GYN exam is very important too. Um, if those don't show a great deal or if they're questionable, uh, you can do a, a CAT scan, a CT scan, an MRI, or a PET scan um, can, can um, show ovarian cancer. Okay. Well, with that, we're going to talk more about what happens if one of these tests are positive in the second half of our program. But we're going to take a short break here right now. Uh, in case you tuned in late, we're talking with Nancy Long. Nancy is a nurse practitioner. She's also the Annapolis Volunteer Market Coordinator for the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. And you're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Today's discussion is about ovarian cancer, a very, very important topic for older women, for all women, as far as that's concerned. And we are speaking with Nancy Long. She is a nurse practitioner and also the Annapolis Volunteer Market Coordinator with the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. And before the break, we talked about screening tests, but we wanted to just get back uh, and talk a little bit more about less common symptoms. It's so important to recognize this disease and what are positive symptoms that there's no doubt we might have ovarian cancer and maybe common, less common symptoms where it's not quite so obvious. So Nancy, let's get back to that. T tell us a little bit more of some of the less common symptoms that we still need to be mindful of in connection with ovarian cancer. Thanks, Cheryl. Um, yes, and bowel changes. Um, if you are, if you've never been constipated before, and all of a sudden you you're constipated or diarrhea, so a change in bowel habits should be addressed. Menstrual changes. Bleeding in between periods always should be addressed. Um, heavier bleeding than normal, pain during intercourse, back pain, fatigue, all of these symptoms, they can be common, very common, and they can be, most of the time they are not ovarian cancer. But if, again, they persist, they need to be addressed and we need to have in our differential diagnosis ovarian cancer. And again, what we had talked about before the break is to write down these symptoms, especially if you're concerned about them. And so when you do go to see your gynecologist or your primary care physician that you can mention, oh, by the way, I had this or that symptom, and that can help 
in making the diagnosis as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I keep talking about NOCC's website. Let me just give it to you. It's ovarian.org. They have a wealth of information on ovarian cancer, signs and symptoms, what to ask your doctor. So um, it, it's, it's a wonderful resource for women to learn about ovarian cancer and for those with ovarian cancer. And I just want to make sure this is a national organization, so no matter where people are listening to this program, uh, that's available for everyone. Absolutely. We have regional managers all over the country, and we will get into the NOCC programs later, but our main mission is to prevent and cure ovarian cancer and to improve the lives of our survivors. So it's a great organization. And you are absolutely correct. We will talk a little bit about uh, the coalition a little bit later. But I now want to pick up where we left off um, earlier about your commenting that while there isn't a formal screening test, there are ways that the uh, ovarian cancer can be diagnosed. And so let's take it to the next step. If the screening results that one ha- uh, a woman has are positive, What's the next step? Is is she referred to an oncologist? Uh, what is is prescribed or recommended for the woman as to what comes next? Yes, and a GYN oncologist would be the next step. Um, they are expert in one diagnosing what type of ovarian cancer, and certainly the surgery. And often, many of them do the aftercare, the chemotherapy as well. Um, so it is vital to be referred to a GYN oncologist. And what happens then? Uh, is is the biopsy the best way to confirm the diagnosis? Is is that usually what happens, or are there other treatments or procedures uh, recommended? Yeah, and and there are so many different um, ways of handling this. So. Um, your GYN oncologist will determine if a biopsy is necessary first. For instance, if there is um, just a small mass on the ovary, sometimes they'll go in um, just with a hysteroscopy, a, a small incision in the abdomen to take a biopsy. If it is uh, extensive, if they are think that the ovarian cancer is extensive, they may just opt for surgery. Um, first, and then the pathologist will take a look at everything and determine type of ovarian cancer as well as the staging. And you just created a very nice segue into my next question, and that is the the three types of ovarian cancer. Explain what they are. Are some more common than others? Do they occur in different stages of life, so to speak? Tell us about the the types of ovarian cancer that we should know about. So that's a very complicated question. Um, And I probably am not um, qualified to discuss it in depth. But let me tell you that there are many multiple types and subtypes of ovarian cancer. They're all treated very differently. They present differently. Some of them present in the younger population, some as we had talked in the older population. They look differently under the microscope. Um, Some are more common. The actual, the the most common that we see is called high-grade serous epithelial cancer. And that's uh, what most of our older population, uh, that occurs most in our older population. So it is it's a question that probably would take much longer than we have, but um, that's why it's really good to go to the experts um, and they will determine your type um, and and stage. I know you said you don't want to go into detail, but when I was doing the research just to be able to ask you some good questions here, I understood that there's also something called the sex cord uh, stromal cancer and germ cell cancer. And the fact that uh, it was mentioned, I was just wondering if that was something that at least people should be aware of and maybe has more information on the coalition. 
Yeah, so that we do have on our website, again, um, the different types um, of ovarian cancer, but the sex cord stromal cancer, um, the the stroma is the tissue that holds the ovary together. The germ cell cancer produces the eggs and tumors can form in these cells as well. So I know that often they say those three types, the epithelial, sex cord, and germ germ cell cancer. But to answer that question fully is uh, beyond my capabilities. Okay. Well, at least uh, our listeners will be aware that there are different types. And as you had said, the epithelial ovarian cancer is the most common. The high-grade serous epithelial, yes. Okay. To digress for just a moment, oftentimes women hear about ovarian cysts. And I'd just like to have you talk a little bit more about ovarian cysts because I'm wondering, might that condition also be something that could be mistaken for ovarian cancer? And so what would women need to know about ovarian cysts? Yeah, so ovarian cysts are very common in a menstrual cycle. Um, Each month, uh, the follicles produce... uh, There are cysts called follicles that are produced each month, and they break open and an egg is released. That's called ovulation. So there is a cyst formed every month in a normal menstrual cycle. But if that cyst, if the hormones just aren't exactly right, if that cyst grows a little larger than it should, it can cause discomfort um, and Oftentimes, it can be diagnosed on a sonogram. This is, and they call them functional cysts. Um, and there are other types of cysts too that are not ovarian cancer. And um, but they obviously they have to be evaluated. Um, sometimes a general GYN will go in to remove a cyst from the ovary if he thinks it is not an ovarian. He or she thinks it's not an ovarian cancer. Women that are older, though really should not be making cysts. So even though it's not 100% that those cysts would be cancer in the older population, those cysts have to be um, carefully evaluated because older, uh, the older population not having menstrual cycles should not have an ovarian cyst each month. And would ovarian cysts be diagnosed with the same kind of tests that you talked about earlier um, that are used for... Uh diagnosing ovarian cancer? So, you know, it, it's really the, the healthcare professional would determine that. Um, on sonograms, cysts, if they're fluid-filled, they are usually benign. And so the radiologist can kind of put that in his notes. Um, it's not a definite diagnosis, but the impression, they usually call it the impression, is a benign fluid-filled cyst. So in that case, no. But if the radiologist um, talks about something looking suspicious, then those other tests may be ordered. I also wanted to ask you about the stages of ovarian cancer. Again, when you talked about your own experience, you mentioned a late stage of finding the ovarian cancer. Help us understand more about the stages of ovarian cancer, and and how are, how is that determined? What are the criteria? So, the staging of ovarian cancer is is usually done in surgery by the GYN oncologist, and it is really determines how much the cancer has spread. So, staging is usually one through four. There are many sub-stages of that. Um, And so the surgeon will determine by looking how much of the cancer has spread throughout the abdomen or the pelvis. And then often the pathologist too will have a hand in determining the grade of the cancer. So it's a very involved um, process. And with that information then, first of all, the determination of what type it is and then what stage, is this all the information then that the oncologist and the physician uh, who's treating the woman 
is this all they need to know in terms of deciding what the best treatment option is, or are there other factors also that need to be taken into account? Sure. Well, absolutely. The staging of the cancer, the pathology report of the cancer, and then, yes, the GYN oncologist or the medical oncologist, oftentimes they work in conjunction with each other, um, will determine the best treatment for someone with ovarian cancer. Um, you know, the health of the person, um, uh, the age of the person, there are a lot of determining factors. And I suspect, again, that uh, since this is a, an occurrence in older women, there might be other social or uh, factors that might family considerations, this sort of thing. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's why um, NOCC is, is so wonderful in helping our survivors. We do survivor supports. We have a meal program that we offer to women going through treatment and their caregivers. We have mental health counseling, which is so important. So yes, so many factors go into determining treatments. Well, let's talk briefly about some of those treatment options. Uh, let's start with surgery. What are the surgical options for uh, ovarian cancer, and what are the goals uh, in using surgery as the primary treatment option? The goal of surgery is to go in and remove any visible signs of cancer. Um, and that's why it's so important that it be the GYN oncologist. They're, they're very adept at doing that. And they, they might remove the appendix. They might remove the spleen. They might remove the gallbladder, uh, anything that, and then they, they, um, it's called a debulking surgery. Um, they try and remove as much of the cancer as is visible. And so is this uh, an option that uh, many women choose, or do they prefer to go to something like chemotherapy? Uh, and and how, how does that determine whether it's going to be surgery or chemotherapy? Or- Again, it, it's between their physician and the patient. And oftentimes, if they feel like there's a great deal of disease, they would do chemotherapy first for three, three sessions of chemo first then do the surgery, and then do chemo again after. Um, and, you know, we, we always are, as, as the patient, we always are uh, partnering with our physicians, and we do have a say in what we would like to have done. Um, we take our guidance from our healthcare providers, our GYN oncologist, but certainly it's a partnership. I think sometimes people don't know a lot about chemotherapy. And I was just wondering, are there different forms of chemotherapy that people can, women can have? I mean, I think sometimes we don't, we hear this generic term chemotherapy. What does that mean? I, and it goes on for a long term or maybe a, a briefer time. And you just talked about the, the combination of surgery and chemotherapy. Um, but it would be helpful to to talk about chemotherapy not only in terms of the forms but side effects. So often you hear about the side effects and can they be managed? Help us understand a little bit more about if chemotherapy is the treatment of choice. Yeah, and chemo today is much better than it used to be. Although I'm not saying it's easy, um, the standard of care for ovarian cancer usually. And again, this is for the most common type of ovarian cancer, are two drugs called Taxol and Carboplatin, and they are given in combination with each other. Today, we are so fortunate in having um, many other drugs that can be used in combination with chemo. And certainly when chemo is done, we now have maintenance drugs that can be used. So um, we are at a much better time. Now, I'm not saying more doesn't need to be done. We definitely need more research for ovarian cancer. Um, but we are at a better point in we, that we have more options now. Not we, but the physicians have more options to offer us. Right. And are the side effects still as severe 
as uh, what, what we always heard about in terms of nausea, loss of hair. Uh, these are the things that you hear about the most, but. Well, they, they, um, they can be managed. Um, there's often a nurse navigator or a chemo nurse who we can go to for help and our physicians as well. But nausea can be managed with medication. Um, many women lose their hair. But um, there is now something called a cold cap, where if you put a, a, a very iced cap on your head, um, you may uh, prohibit hair loss. Uh, that's another whole topic. Um, but the side effects can be managed. And uh, it, it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But with support, um, you, can, you can get through. And another therapy that you often hear about in connection with cancer, uh, and I was wondering if it's true for this, is radiation therapy. Is is radiation therapy used to treat ovarian cancer? And if so, are there certain circumstances um, when that would be the case? Yeah, it's not one of the typical treatments for ovarian cancer, but it can be used for pain management. Um, if you have one um, you know, one area, a, a node or something, it can be used, but it's not, it's not your typical treatment. Okay. Well, let's talk about the prognosis for ovarian cancer. Are there, we've talked a lot about the symptoms, the risk factors, treatment options, screening, screening treatment options. Help us understand more about what the prognosis is uh, for ovarian cancer? Are there certain factors that um, can improve the chances of recovery or survival? Or what, what do we know at this point? So it's really impossible. Um, and, and again, I'm not qualified. Each, each is so individualized. Um, prognosis for prognosis, it's impossible to generalize. Um, there's so much more reason for hope today because um, we've got so many new treatments. Um, it really can depend on the health of the person diagnosed, uh, at the person's health at diagnosis. Um, so there's so many factors that go into prognosis. Um, I'm a big believer that we shouldn't put ourselves into a statistical category, that um, there are many things we can do other than medical treatment to help ourselves through any cancer. Um, and, and they are things, uh, complementary therapies like meditation, relaxation, um, uh, exercise, um, acupuncture, prayer, um, so many things, uh, enter into our prognoses. So there is so much more hope for women today with ovarian cancer. My suggestion is to get with other people who have ovarian cancer, who can lift you up and support and encourage you. I also would like to hear, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I think it bears a little bit more comment from you, and that is how family members and care partners can help uh, in connection with the mental health needs of all women. But in our case, we're talking more about older women who have uh, ovarian cancer. Why is the support of families and care partners and friends why is that so important in terms of helping an individual who has a, an ovarian cancer diagnosis? It's so vital. Um, I have been the patient and I have been the caregiver for several people. And I honestly think being the caregiver is the more difficult role. It's, it is so important for the caregiver, um, the loved one, to be at the doctor's appointments with the patient, with the ovarian patient. Um, to support in ways that that person needs. Some people need solitude. Some people need lots of people around them. I think it would behoove anyone to have some mental health counseling uh, during this time. Some people really love support groups. Others don't. Um, but there are so many ways. Again, our NOCC supports the caregiver. We have support groups um, for caregivers. It's called Teal Cares. We have support groups for the patient, um, and our, it's called Teal Hearts support groups. 
So it is just vital when when someone is ill and having going through this tough treatment, it is so important. Even just cards being sent to people is is such an uplifting thing. Um, I think that support is another healing factor. If a woman or a patient has the support of their family, their loved ones, that can heal as well as the, the medical treatment. I'd also like to hear a little bit more, and I'm sure that our listeners would as well, is the participation of women in clinical trials. If this is still a disease where a cure is not there for everyone, are there clinical trials going on? Uh, should women be participating in them? How can they do that? What What can you tell us about that aspect of finding a cure for this uh, this condition? That's a great question. Clinical trials absolutely lead to new and improved standards of care for ovarian cancer. The women that were in clinical trials years ago helped these new drugs that we have right now come to the market and helping people live longer, more productive lives. Um, there are lots of myths around clinical trials. If a physician offers a clinical trial, I've heard uh, friends of mine say, oh my gosh, a clinical trial, that means you know, there's no other hope for me. No, that does not mean that. Um, anyone who chooses to join a clinical trial will receive the best care available and as well as help themselves, uh, as, as well as helping others to find new treatments. So um, I think they're vital in learning more about how to treat ovarian cancer. Um, again, I keep going back to NOCC, but we have a clinical trial fund. If anyone is partaking in a clinical trial, there is a grant of $2,500 to be used in any way they need, childcare, transportation, any way, because we are so supportive of clinical trials. We, we think they are so valuable. Um, and we also um, provide donations uh, for research and clinical trials. So they are vital to the health of ovarian cancer treatments. I'd like to just, uh, in the time we have left, and you've mentioned a lot of good examples of programs and resources and education and support of the uh, National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. Is there a particular place on the website where people, whether it's women themselves or their family members, can learn more about clinical trials and where they could enroll? Yes, there is. On the website, they, they will give uh, places to go to look for clinical trials, but also, of course, your healthcare provider is the one who will guide you and um, in helping you to determine what clinical trials might be appropriate for you. Um, but yes, again, ovarian.org, our website has other resources that you can go to to look for all of these things that we talked about today. Now, did we miss anything in terms of uh, a program or uh, a resource as far as the coalition is concerned? I want to make sure that people know about, again, give us that website and uh, any other really special program that you want to emphasize to our listeners. Yeah, the website is easy. It's ovarian.org. Um, you can go on there, and if you look for the Central Maryland chat or market, my email is on there. It's centralmd at ovarian.org. Um, we welcome questions. We welcome newly diagnosed ovarian survivors. Um, our programs are wonderful for them. Um, our support groups, our meal program, our mental health counseling, they're all free to ovarian survivors and their families and their caregivers. If I might put in a little plug, we do a large uh, walk for ovarian cancer this year. It's going to be on October 8th. It's in Annapolis, um, but we encompass Maryland, Virginia, D.C., anyone uh, who is within, you know, who would like to come, we would love to have you. It is a day where we celebrate survivors. We also remember those we've lost to ovarian cancer. Um, a lot of times families will form a team to support or to 
honor and remember someone they've lost, it's a very healing day. It's an inspirational day. So it's October 8th. Uh, it's in Annapolis. And again, you can find information on our website about that. Um, again, there's a lot of reason for hope with ovarian cancer now. Please be aware of the signs and symptoms, which you can find in more in depth on our website. Um, tell your family members if any friends are complaining about symptoms for a long period of time, you might save a life. And if this broadcast reaches one person uh, to save a life, it will be worth everything we've done. So thank you, Cheryl, so very much for uh, giving us this opportunity to talk about this uh, subject near and dear to my heart. Okay. Well, I want to thank Nancy Long, nurse practitioner, and you've heard it already that she is with Annapolis. She's the Annapolis Volunteer Market Coordinator with the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. Thank you for joining me today, Nancy. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, you can find out about all of the various programs that we offer both on Apple and on Spotify, the podcast. And of course, this program will also be on Apple and Spotify. So you can also check out the TV show content uh, that we produce monthly. So be sure and, and check out our website. And besides that, if you want to learn more about the person who is in charge of producing this show, that is Ink Mouth Media. And you can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Music.